Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Her God Story, where you will always hear a good story to encourage, inspire, and equip you in your walk with the Lord. I'm your host, Jody Caracosta, ministry leader at Somebody Cares America and International, author and traveler on this journey of faith. My guest, Beverly Burchette, is a sought-after photographer and pastor's wife. Even before she married her husband, Charles, she began teaching in Sunday school in her church. Later, as a pastor's wife, she served as youth director, women's Bible study leader, and worship leader, including flag and banner and dance teams in the church, which is a, a new way that people are worshiping in the past decade or two. She also founded Women at War for the City, which is an effort to facilitate prayer for her city and the land and the church in that part of Texas. Beverly wrote a prayer booklet for the Call Texas in 2003 and has been on the board of Pray Texas as well as the Texas Texas directors for the United States Global Apostolic Prayer Network. In 2005, when Hurricane Rita's eye came directly through Kirbyville, she jumped in to help run a point of distribution at the church, which was the start of involvement in other disaster relief ministries as well. But in addition to ministry, Beverly homeschooled her children, She gave piano lessons for 20 years, and now she runs her own professional photography business. Her joy has always been her husband, Charles, her two children, and their families, which include seven very special grandchildren. Beverly's heart is to worship the Lord Jesus, her King and her Master, and to walk in daily obedience to Him. Now, Beverly's story in some ways is reminiscent to me to Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness. Beverly's learned the reality of spiritual warfare and knows that John 1.15 is true. And that verse says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Welcome, Beverly. Hi, I'm so glad to be here, Jody, and share my story. I got tired thinking about it all. <laughs> <laughs> you have some doozy. You have some doozies in there. So, Definitely. Beverly, God sent you and your family into some challenging situations, but He didn't do it without giving you the tools to handle them. For you, that preparation started pretty young. So, what was your life like growing up, and how did you come to faith in Christ? Well, first of all, probably. A very significant thing in my early life was that my father was an alcoholic. And during the week, he was a hard working man. But on the weekends, he would visit bars and get drunk, come home and abuse my mother. And there mm. came a point in this cycle where one night he brought his some of his drunk friends home with him to show off his brand new two-month-old son, who was my brother, and he got him out of the baby bed. It was like after midnight and said, you know, put him down on the linoleum floor and ask him to crawl. And all he could do was bump his little chin on the hard floor and cry. And my mother was beside herself. So the next day, my aunt showed up and we were packed and ready and, and we left with her. My mom, Mm. she would have taken the abuse to try to maintain a family, but she was not going to allow the children to be abused. In those days, that was the 50s, it wasn't, uh, it was kind of rare uh, divorce. Yeah, not very common, was it? Yeah. No. But I saw in my mom, uh, she never had a victim spirit. She Mm -hmm. took a lot of attention to us. She didn't 
try to go out and meet other men or anything like that. She was a very good mother. And I think I have some of my feistiness and drive from her. And I've never <laughs> looked at my life and my circumstances like I was a victim or poor me. I just yeah. I felt like it could move me on to the next thing or next level. So did your mom get you involved in church? We were very active uh, in church. At 10 years old, I was at vacation Bible school and I memorized John 3.16. And really I did it because I wanted that pretty little pink Bible that they were giving. (laughs) uh, If you memorized it, you know how God's word is. It was convicting. And even at 10 years old, I didn't know the scope of my sin, but I did. I was brokenhearted, you know, that I had sinned and broken God's heart. So I uh, received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And then a week later, uh, my best friend and I were baptized together. And so that kind of began my my walk with the Lord. I had known about God really as a kid, loved God, but then I had that personal relationship. People really didn't teach a lot about growth at that time. And so mm-hmm. you just kind of go to church and hear the Sunday school stories and so forth. But some of the things that you encounter later in life, you I wasn't that prepared for. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said you loved you loved God, but you hadn't actually made that uh, decision to follow Christ. And that's, I think, where a lot of people are. They know there's God. They know Jesus loves them, but they haven't committed to fully following Jesus and accepting his forgiveness of sins and making a change in their life. And that's what it takes. You know, Christianity is is not just saying, yeah, Jesus is alive and he's a great guy, but it's actually declaring him as Lord and Savior and making that turn and following him. And then we enter into, gosh, we're children of the King of Kings and we enter into an inheritance that even people who've been saved for 50, 60 years don't understand all of the inheritance we have in God. You've learned a little bit of that, which we're going to talk about along the way. So after you accepted the Lord personally, you know, there wasn't these discipleship programs in churches. So how did your faith get nurtured through those years? You know, uh, you started teaching Sunday school when you were 19. So what happened in those nine years that brought you to a place where you felt confident enough to actually teach? You know, we not having an earthly father invested in your life and leading you, because I believe that our relationship with, with our heavenly father hinges on our earthly father. I don't think fathers Mm -hmm. realize the importance they have in their children's lives and, and how the children see them is often how they will carry that on and see their own, their heavenly father. So not having that, I loved God. I want, I read and prayed. I never felt a real closeness. It was like God was somewhere out there, but not just right there with me. Through time, though, I had to cultivate that. And like I said, you weren't taught a lot on it. I think God had his hand on me from the moment I was born, really. I just believe that some of the things I went through and also some of the things I escaped during my life were God. And he was preparing me for what 
for my destiny. And I believe the scripture that Reese says that he has, you know, a destiny for all of us and it's for our good. And so I believe he was. I was a moral young lady as a teenager. But again, that I think sometimes we confuse being moral with having a relationship with God or being godly. My mother taught me those things about morality. And I wanted to be thought of, you know, as someone who was a good person. And in those days, we're talking about 50s and 60s, you wanted to have a good reputation. In those days, it wasn't as it is today. Tell you about how I actually got to teach third grade grade girls. My mom remarried and married a man that loved her and loved me and my brother just as his own. Not only did I have a new father figure in my life, but we moved to a new town, new church, new friends, started kind of all over. And we, again, went to church uh, there in Jacksonville, Texas. And I will say, I'll just interject here, that was definitely a God thing because in Dallas, Texas, he was preparing a young teenage boy to eventually come to Jacksonville six years later and I know we're not there yet and we'll get to that but (laughs) he brought me from Decatur Texas to Jacksonville and he will six years later bring the man that I married so we'll talk about that in a little bit everything was new but again like I said I felt still didn't have that closeness with God that I really desired and wanted lady in church came to me and said I think you're exactly who we need in the third grade for these girls. I thought, me? I just was, (laughs) it really, really? And I had been to to junior college, and my dad Uh had said, I want you to study something so that you'll have something to fall back on in case you need it in life. And he was very logical when it came to things like that. So I had come back was uh, working at First National Bank in Jacksonville and going to church, obviously. And when the this little lady asked me to take that position, yeah, it scared me because I thought, am I capable? Do I know how to do this? And But she, she assured me, you're exactly what we need. And God told mm. me you're the one. So I thought, okay, if God said it, that's, you know, and it was probably the most wonderful experience of my life to get to be with those girls every week and share with them, you know, the Bible and, and more, and not just Bible stories, but how they relate and how they're applicable in even their lives at nine years old. And they ended in my wedding party. My Sunday school class did when Charles and I finally met. So, oh, wow. You know, I find that whenever uh, the Lord asks me to step out in faith to do something like teach or write or I always learn. I mean, he he's doing it as much to teach me something as it is to teach someone else something because you have to know it. You have to experience something in yourself before you can communicate it and share it with others. Exactly. I mean, just stepping out to do that is discipleship in itself, (laughs) growing in the Lord, right in itself. And you have to be, I know discipleship, that's kind of scary because you're 
in essence, telling someone, follow me, you know, and do what I do. And so you're going, really? The Lord taught us about that as Winterald and I were married and in Virginia. And the key is to be one step ahead. That's all. Just one step ahead. It doesn't mean you have to be the most knowledgeable and perfect person walking with Jesus every day, making no mistakes. It just means you've got to be one step ahead so you can lead someone else to that next step. And when I learned that, that I didn't have to be perfect to be a leader, I just had to uh, walk daily in the steps God had for me, then that's a great relief (laughs) to know that. Well, it is, it is a great relief and it's, it, it it ends up being an exciting adventure. Absolutely. And spurs you on to keep walking forward and keep learning, keep following, keep listening and obeying. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned that Charles, the Lord brought Charles from Dallas, um, there to Jacksonville. So how Mm -hmm. did that happen? When did he enter the picture and was it love at first sight? For him, I think he saw me in the bank first, and that was okay. Yeah, and so he, I saw him playing basketball because he came on a basketball scholarship to uh, Jacksonville Baptist College. He was a basketball star in Dallas. They had gone to state. He was sought after by several D1 colleges or universities, even, and finally one of the calls he was on to one of these coaches in these big schools, the coach said, I need to know today if you're coming. And if you knew Charles, this, this would not shock you, but uh, (laughs) it's not normal for people. But he says, well, wait a minute, I'll have to pray. I have to ask the Lord first. And the Lord said, no, you're going to Jacksonville Baptist College. And he's going, Lord, are you serious? (laughs) little junior high, I mean, junior college in a small town versus West Point and some different other schools that had uh, offered him. He made the decision then. He didn't know why, but God knew because he had brought me there six years earlier. So he brought Charles there. Charles said when he drove into town, he said, Lord, what have you done to me? And uh, so anyway, he began playing for them and uh, he would come in the bank to do his little bit of business and see me. But then I saw him when he became our youth pastor. He was youth, college and career. And so I passed him in the hallway one Sunday morning and I just greeted him, said hello. He didn't even speak to me. I thought, well, how? How stuck up are you? But now that I know him, he is so purpose driven. And he had his mindset on his job that morning of ministry with those youth, and he didn't see anything else around. But I went on a hayride with him shortly after that, and he sang Blue Moon to me, and that was it. Um, he, I had thought I was going to marry my high school sweetheart. And he was at A&M at the time, but it was, it was obvious there was something there. And within three months, we were engaged. And three months after that, we were married. Yes. That was a whirlwind romance. 
It was a whirlwind romance. Honestly, I never imagined being, I knew his God had called him to be a pastor, not, not a preacher, by the way, but a pastor. That's very significant in our life because it, God got, got that message as a teenager from the Lord. Uh, I think it's been the foundation of the rest of our lives because God has never changed his mind on that. Anyway, I'd never thought about that. And I, I thought, how in the world do I be a pastor's wife? You know, you have these conjured up ideas of, of what they should be and their job. Oh, I needed to play the piano. And thank God my mother gave me lessons in the third grade and uh, all of that. But, um, of course, as time went by, I realized there's no formula. There's no set thing. It's just, no. But everybody has expectations no. of their pastor's yes. wife, don't they? And you have, they do. <laughs> and you have, you have them of yourself as well, too. But, but definitely yeah. the congregation does, that's for sure. But our beginning years, I think, really set us up well for ministry time. As youth pastor, we just did so much in our community. And Charles and I had a... Um, little teenage hangout in Jacksonville during that summer of 69 after we had married in June and it was called his place. And so, um, I thought, Oh, so this has been a kind of a pastor's wife. You cook pizza, you sweep floors, you, uh, figure out games to play. You counsel all these poor teenagers, you know, going through all their, their things. And then you witness though, the best part and they get you get they get saved and one thing i'd like to mention here because i think it it was it set the course and it was the very first time that i as i look back on it that i entered into spiritual warfare i had no clue what that was or that it was even happening but uh that summer charles uh, asked sammy tippett do you know him he, he's an evangelist. I don't know. And oh my goodness, mm -hmm. you need to check on who he is. He's amazing. He's been all over the world. His wife is named Tex. And so he's from Louisiana and she was from Texas. So that's how she got that. Anyway, we had what George Otis Jr. would call a transformation of a city that summer. Uh, in Charles invited, Yes. And people still talk about it. We had a youth revival in the football stadium. And before the revival was over, every church in the area was wanting to give toward it or participate in some way because it was so huge. Kids wow. were getting saved just walking down the sidewalks. And one evening after we had met in the tomato bowl for the meeting, Sammy said, let's go to the housing project. And that was in kind of the, it was in the black community. In those days, you, we weren't real segregated. God's not a white God and for a white communities for everybody, he loves everybody. And so Sammy said, let's go. So we did. And it was like high rises that encircled a kind of a courtyard. We stepped out into that courtyard and all of a sudden from those apartments came hordes of 
young people and teenagers. They weren't real excited to see us. They had bats, they had chains. I never saw a gun. They were hollering, cussing, yelling at us. And Sammy was trying to share the gospel, but he's so good at it and he's so relational. Charles and Sammy told Tex and I we needed to get out of there fast. They said, we'll meet you as soon as we can at the all-night restaurant in town. So we did. We got in the car and we went to that restaurant and we stayed in the parking lot facing it. We could see through the windows. That, I think, was the first time in my life I experienced intercession and spiritual warfare because we honestly wondered if our husbands would come back alive or be in the hospital, you know, the next word we got. And so for several hours, we cried out to God nonstop in that car. And like after two hours, we looked up and saw our husband sitting in a booth in the restaurant and they were laughing. (laughs) And And we looked at each other and we said, what in the world? Why didn't they tell us? Here we are crying and going on, you know, because we're so worried and we're asking God to save them and help them. And there they are enjoying a hamburger. We got out, went in, and they said that after we left that it calmed down and Sammy was able to share the gospel and hundreds of these young people got saved. And he said they were they would hug Sammy and him, and Charles was telling me, and they were crying in a way, wish I had not left. I would have loved to have seen that, but I really think Tex and I had our job to do. I think our intercession, our warfare was standing in the gap for that situation. And so the whole town received people. I know our church had 700 people give their lives to Jesus or have a turnaround. And that was just our church. This is a town of 15,000 people. And we had 700 decisions. And then the other churches had, had decisions. And it was, like I said, I didn't realize at the time how huge that was. But in looking back, I think that was a transformation it wasn't just one church having a revival and a few kids getting saved it was the city all the churches coming together and each church getting a harvest i think that was my real first experience and i had no idea what god had for us in the future but i think that was a a good foundational start of it yeah i gave you a glimpse of what he wants to do in every community, really. Yes. Even before you knew yes. you were seeing or experiencing. After Jacksonville, I mean, young pastors, they move around quite a bit, um, you know, until they find where they are, where God has called them. Where did God call you next? We went to uh, Newport News, Virginia. I remember uh, Dr. Jimmy Draper called Charles. He had been Charles's uh well, Dr. Criswell had been Charles's pastor from since he was born into the church. He was his parents' pastor. He married his parents. He called and he said, I have a place, because uh, Charles had just been graduated from seminary, and he said, I have 
a place I believe that might I would like for you to consider, and it is to be a co-pastor, help a re- the pastor that has been there a good while to retire. And so I, he said, are y'all willing uh, to go anywhere or what you're in? I, I said to him, because I talked to him, Charles went home and I talked to him, for, I said, anywhere but New York. And of course, uh, <laughs> that it, I would have gone anywhere. But anyway, we ended up going to Virginia. And I think what we experienced there, one was that we were really Texan. <laughs> because mm, Virginia yeah. was nothing like Texas. And the people <laughs> were nothing like what we had been used to. The church was nothing like we had been used to. Very high church. And mm-hmm. if you know Charles and me, especially Charles, we just kind of don't fit into that type of thing. I think what God did was uh, just kind of show us more of who we were. And we were away from family for the first time, away from friends, because he grew up in Dallas. I was in the uh, Jacksonville, Dallas area uh, through my life. We were without anybody, and Hunter had been born in 74, and so we took him. Uh, he was a toddler at the time, and we were on our own and had to rely on each other. We couldn't call mom or, you know, I could call her, but she for sure can come yeah. over and help me. Of course, we met some wonderful people that we still uh, communicate from time to time with now. But but still, I think to uh, he, he just drew us closer, and we were going to need that. We were going to need mm-hmm. to be... Um, close with each other. We were going to need, we, we would need to know that we could trust each other and that I could trust God was speaking to Charles and he was leading our family in the right way. He could trust me to be where God needed me to be and to be what he needed. And so I think that was established then. In, yeah. 19, in 77, then Paris was born. And at one month old, um, we made the decision when she was one month old, we would go to Florida. We were asked to come be the pastor of a mission church. Um, A large church in Clearwater, Florida had started this mission. And so it had been going on for probably six months or maybe close to a year. And they needed a pastor because it was, it was okay. starting to grow. And so a month later, Priest was two months old. So we had a little boy three and a little girl two months old. And we packed up and we headed to Florida. And bef- right before that, because it was a mission church, Charles and I were commissioned as Southern Baptist Home Mission Board missionaries. And in fact, it was at a huge uh, service where uh, Billy Graham led it and actually commissioned us along with others. Wow. So we went to Florida. That must have given you some confidence to go forward into Florida. It really did. And again, missionaries, I really, (laughs) each step you're going, Lord, is this, you're calling me to do this, you know, um, yeah. new, a new adventure, a new, uh, look at ministry. 
And of course, it wasn't a foreign missionary or um, what you think of necessarily as a missionary. But in essence, we were in a new community, new neighborhood where they're in Florida at that time anyway. You know, they mission churches were starting to pop up, not just in Florida, but other states too, because there were neighborhoods unreached and in this area of Clearwater, it was growing by leaps and bounds. The housing mm-hmm. was just booming. And so you would have thousands of people living, you know, in these housing, in these communities, but no church anywhere around. So so we went and excited, new adventure, and we knew we were not to stay in Virginia, but just we were there to help uh, the pastor to make an ease into his retirement in the church and Mm -hmm. so we were very excited sure enough the church began to grow we were busting as you if you will at the scene Uh, people were getting saved weekly we were having baptisms in fact we had to have them in people's swimming pools because our little Mm -hmm. building didn't have a baptistry yet and also many we baptized in Tampa Bay. Uh, yeah. and it was just a fun, exciting time. Um, but then, <laughs> then all hell broke loose and it really did. Yeah. Uh, well, explain, just stop for a minute and explain, you know, you mentioned earlier that Charles was called to be a pastor, not a preacher. Mm-hmm. And I think right. that kind of plays in here where he really stepped in as a pastor to pastor people. For people who might not really understand the difference, explain what is that pastor's heart? Well, a pastor's heart is to equip his followers, equip his congregation, the sheep that he's responsible for, for the work of the ministry. It's mm-hmm. not that the pastor does the work of the ministry. Yes, he does, but he he's responsible to God to prepare those that are following him and to for the work of the ministry. We yeah. are all supposed to do it. And right. so discipleship was huge for us, as I had mentioned earlier, and we have been trained in Virginia, that was another reason probably the Lord had us there. We were trained to begin to disciple. And that was new um, because you would take a new Christian or sometimes a Christian who had been saved many years before, but they, they didn't understand how to go deeper. They didn't understand about scripture memory and about having a quiet time and about, um, you know, hearing the word and applying it and meditating on it. They, they didn't, they just didn't understand that. I didn't understand that. So we would take either a small group or we'd take individual, like I might take some women, Charles would take some men and we would disciple them to help them get a good start in their Christian walk. How do you have a quiet time? And I know for us, you and me, we're thinking, boy, that's awful easy. You just go in there and read your Bible, you know, but honestly, there's well, more know, to it. You know, it's not even, I mean, you know, there is more no. to it. And yeah, it's is. it's a learning process. I mean, yes. gosh, if you don't invite the Holy Spirit to 
you know, make the word alive to you. It's, it's drudgery. It can be drudgery, especially if you're reading, you know, the prophets or some of these books that (laughs) are hard to understand. I mean, so-and-so had so-and-so and and had so-and-so. So, (laughs) So, you know, Holy Spirit, help me know what that means. (laughs) You know, how the hell? Yeah. Why did you you put this in the Bible, Lord? He, he, he does. He does do that. That's, that is so amazing. But, uh, so Satan, so, Satan yeah. definitely, Satan definitely does not want the average, yeah. you know, Christian growing in the faith and being equipped to do works of service. So when yeah. you came into this new community, this community that was growing and this church that was, you know, being, being established there to equip people to do works of service, he didn't like that too much. No, because the enemy cannot defeat you as well. I mean, you're you're more discerning and aware because you're you're the Lord's ordering your steps every day and, and you're learning how to follow and obey and and be in his word. And so he can, he can't it's harder on him to, yeah. to lead you down the wrong path and way. But I think the the there was a epiphany, I guess, or a or a day that uh, Charles was in his office, and like I said, we had a fairly small church, but it was just a building; it didn't look like a church really. And we started adding some mobile units until we could build to house uh, like the youth group and different things. And his office was in one of them. And he was there studying and praying. And he says, his testimony on this is he kind of looked down and he saw the feet of Jesus standing by him. And uh, then as time progressed, you know, the Lord began to speak to him and said, Charles, I want to show you something. And he put his arm around Charles and we know that Charles felt it, it was as if he was really a person and right there. We're not saying that a person really can't, but it was as if, and it was, yeah. of course, a vision of, of the some... Lord. Yes. And so he yeah. showed, he walked, Charles knew it was Egypt and he heard the scream of the destroyer and he knew it was the destroyer as he was going from from house to house, killing the firstborn. Mm. And of course, thank God there were some he couldn't because of the blood over the yeah. doorposts. But there were many, especially Egyptian children too, that he was able to take. And the Lord said to Charles, if you will let me for my glory, I want to let this thing, this destroyer, loose in your life. It's for my glory, and you can trust me in it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to say yes. And Charles said, well, you know, Beverly and Hunter and Carice are involved. I need to go home and talk to Beverly. So he called me, and he said, get a babysitter. So he came home. I had taken the kids somewhere and uh, to be watched and he shared with me what he had what the Lord had told him and I don't remember 
anything from that point. He says I was out for four hours. I have no, I don't know. I can't tell you what happened to me or what I was experiencing. All I know is when I woke up, it was as if Charles had just asked me the question, you know, Mm -hmm. told me the situation and said, the Lord asked, and I want, we have to both be, we have to both say yes or no. And I said, well, of course, yes. And of course, it's coming out of my mouth, and I'm going, "What am I saying?" <laughs> you know, your mind, your mind is saying no, mean? but your your <laughs> and, spirit uh, is saying okay. <laughs> yes, but I I think this goes all the way back to my early childhood days. I just there's something that rises up in me to a challenge, especially that the Holy Spirit would give us. You know. It's like, of course, we'll do that because it's for your glory. And of course, if I had known what all would happen, I might not. But isn't it good? God doesn't let us know the future all the time and doesn't, we don't know what the next steps are going to be. Or we probably would go lock ourselves in a bathroom and say, no, thank you. I'm safe here. (laughs) But um, he, anyway. So what did you, I mean, as as a you know as a mom as a woman as the pastor's wife i mean spiritual warfare we hear that and it's hard to put our arms around what that actually means i mean it actually comes can affect the natural realm so what are some of the things that you began experiencing and how did you practically go about you know, standing in faith or combating that in, in whatever way. I mean, what was that spiritual warfare practically that you began encountering? Right. Well, sadly, uh, the enemy comes at us through people. We know, Mm. you know, the Lord has said that it's the, your warfare is not with people. It's with principalities and powers and high places. And so that's something we, it's so important to learn because mm-hmm. that helps us as we deal with people who are not very nice and that the devil is able to use to get at us. And even though we have to confront them sometimes and stand against a person, we have to always remember that it's the enemy, not that person. And yeah. so I think that's been the most important thing. And I, I didn't, uh, I, I did share with you at one time about a stronghold that was in me and that was anger and it stemmed from unforgiveness of my father because of, I thought I, I had not, I thought it was nothing. I thought he was just out of sight, out of mind. I didn't Mm -hmm. think about him at all, but later in life I realized, and I was ministered to for it, that I had horrible outbursts of anger and it was, because of unforgiveness. So Mm. that I had to get that straight. And of course that didn't, that deliverance and freedom come to really when we moved to Kirbyville. But I just say that because a part of spiritual warfare is we have to walk in freedom and we Mm. have to, I, I, to me, in my years of ministry and experience with deliverance and counseling, Unforgiveness is probably the biggest thing that keeps us from having all of God 
and being able to to deal with the enemy. It's, it's hard yeah. to deal in spiritual warfare if you've got any of this in your own life. But um, again, we didn't have training in it at that age. We didn't, you know, we were 30, not even 30 years old yet. And uh, I really didn't know what spiritual warfare was, but I knew that we were being attacked. And so um, almost immediately after we said yes, uh, I went into the uh, mission committee chairman's office because the mother church had sent um, a missions committee to take leadership positions because these were new uh-huh. and they were there before we got there. And so I went into his office. I was leading youth and I needed a check to do a youth event. And he, he said, oh, well, come in. I want you to sit down because I have something I want you to take back and tell your husband. And as I'm telling you this, I'm again thinking it, you want to think it's people, but it's really the enemy, <laughs> but yet he uses people yeah. so, so well. Um, but he said three things. I want you to tell him one is I can leave, go back to the mother church and just let y'all have this and him be the pastor and just you go your merry way, but I'm not said. Secondly, I could knuckle under Charles and just do whatever he wants to do. Not, you know, just uh, let him have full reign. Um, but I'm not. Here's the third thing that I want. He said, he must knuckle under me, do what I say, lead that church how I say, preach what I say. And he said, if you don't, he said, you know, I have the money. A lot of the mission committee members have the money. Uh, We will fire you. We will ruin your life. Your wife, your life, talking to me. Uh, mm. He said, I'll ruin Charles's life. I'll ruin yours, your two children. You will never preach or have pastor ever anywhere again if you don't do what I say. And so this is, I mean, this is supposed to be somebody who's working alongside you, serving in the ministry, serving the yep. Lord. Yep. And um, this was a nasty thing. Oh, and I mean, and frightening. I mean, I'm sure he was much older. Yes, much older. He had worked for the Rand Corporation. He was very smart, brilliant. And he had his own company, electronics and different things. And brilliant man. He was a controller. And the pastor of the mother church later on told us, I sent them out because to to countryside because I wanted to get rid of them myself. And Mm. so... They were the same there as well. I thought, man, why did you sick them on a young couple that had no clue (laughs) of what, you know, our first real senior pastorate. And so I went, if it were me today, he'd have gotten an earful, but I came home, I told Charles that, and that really kind of started the huge uh, warfare that we in encompass or, or encountered, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, we had our phone tapped, lies were told about us uh, to everybody to make them think we were different than we were. 
Uh, discipleship became a dirty word. I was verbally and almost physically attacked at church in the hallway by one of the missions committee members. It was a woman. And she was part of the, she, her part of leadership was a nursery. And she told me she would never keep my children again in the nursery. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I teach Sunday school? How do I, you know, do these things? And you're not going to keep my children but it was because of lies she had been told. And the culmination, and I mean, a lot of things went on that were very hurtful, painful. And Charles and I, again, I told you, we needed to know we could trust each other and have that we had each other. Pray, we prayed together, we strategized together. And uh, the final straw was the Florida General Convention head. He called us and took us out, he and his wife, to dinner on our anniversary and mm. at that dinner before we could even eat all our food he said that he was told when the church was ready to be self-sufficient and you know a, a was constituted as a church and broke mm -hmm. away you know from the mother church that we were going to lead it out of the southern Baptist Convention, and we were going to start a new denomination called Discipleship. That just shows the ignorance and also how deceptive the devil can be. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. the Bible says we're all supposed to be disciples, you know, and disciples. It was totally crazy, really. And and I couldn't eat the rest of my meal and because he said we would be fired. We would never pastor in Florida again. Charles said, I'd never had prime rib before, so I was going to finish my meal. You know, I'm the mother of these two little kids. I'm thinking, Lord, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? What next? We're away from home. God is God. He sold our house within a week. He had us in Kirbyville probably in two months. Did they fire you? Did you guys make a decision to step well, away? The, I mean, what? The, they said we... They wanted us to resign. And so we did because God didn't tell us to do differently. Yeah. Uh, I, there, there has been a time here in Kirbyville where we had to make that choice also. But God said, stay, stand and fight. And we did because it was mm -hmm. right. But then he didn't tell us to do that. The church, like I said, it had grown. We were discipling so many of these people. They didn't accept it. And they begged us to stay and start a church down the street. Well, we're not that kind of person. We're not going to uh, start a new, because that wasn't us. They thought we were like that, but we weren't. And so yeah. we said, no, it wasn't God's plan. And we told them to pray about staying there and seeing who God might bring because we knew God was going to bring judgment. And and he did. He really did. Yeah. We walked in obedience and forgave, but he brought judgment. It was death. There was sickness. Um, there were things to the, to the missions committee. And mm. the chairman who gave me those ultimatums to tell Charles, um, I can't remember exactly the timeline, but he died of a heart attack. We don't take things in our own hands. We obey God and do what he says. And 
leave it with him. And he said, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you, you left blessing, basically blessing that church. You didn't leave. We did. You know, I'm sure it was hurtful, but you chose to forgive. You chose to trust God. You chose to walk in uh, humility. You know, you were basically under the authority of, you know, the the denomination and you, you chose to say, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to be obedient here because this is where God's called us. And sometimes, you know, sometimes God, he shows us what battles to fight and what battles not to fight. Exactly. exactly. I mean, you could have, you could have tried to take up arms there, but that wasn't your fight. No. And again, what did God say? It's for my glory. So we had to consider, all right, what steps, what do we do for God's glory? Of course. And he, he said to leave, he, he did not say to stay, to stand and fight. And there are times he does. But he did. Yeah. So we did. We left. And we so you left here. and you here you are. Yeah. Here you are, yeah. mom with two children and yeah. a husband with no yeah. job. And how did God provide during that, <laughs> that during that season? Well, I, I told you that uh, our house sold in a week and the building boom there was so, so good. And we had bought a new house and that was just in there were lots of houses to choose from so mm-hmm. that it was an economical time as far as for you to buy a house it was good because you're getting in on the ground floor and so also a church member it actually on this missions committee had let us borrow six thousand dollars to pay on a down payment for this house because like i said we didn't have we were just out of seminary. We had been in Newport News for a year and a half, and we had had a house there. But so we owed him. He wanted his money. He sent us a registered letter and said, "I want my money in a week." I, I thought, "Okay, six thousand bucks in a week." And I always say it was my okra that was cooking because somebody came to see the house, and I was cooking okra that evening, and they bought it the <laughs> next day. So in one week we had closed on the house and we had made you had actually closed in a week. Well, I, maybe not closed, but, but we'd signed all the papers, done everything, yeah. you know, going back in time, we were not yet 30. I'm se- I'll be 74 next month. So uh, that's been a while. I can't remember the, the crossing of the money, but we were able to give that man back his 6,000 by the time he had requested and he probably gave us a little longer than a week, but, uh, yeah, but the house sold, sold in a week and we had our money not too long after, uh, it closed and gave him back his and had an equity that we were able to eat on, you know, and we knew we wouldn't go hungry for a few months anyway. So, yeah, so God provided He provided in a huge, huge way. And friends from the church that we had led to the Lord had a house uh, in Florida that we could live in free until we moved to Kirbyville. So God just provided. He provided. He did. Well, walking with God can sometimes be uncomfortable and it's, he's doing it for our good. And he asks us to do things, you know, oftentimes that don't necessarily come natural, like taking care of the needs of people we don't know. Uh, James one twenty seven tells us to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And this can be hard to do if we don't know any of them. 
But that's why Somebody Cares started the Widows and Orphan Fund. We have partners in places like Haiti, Colombia, Botswana, and other parts of the world that are caring for orphans. We hear of widows who've given a lifetime of service to the Lord and are in need. As a company of women together, we can meet those needs that we could not possibly do alone. So we invite you listeners to join our company with a gift at HerGodStory.org to help widows and orphans around the world. Uh, so Beverly, after Florida, you you got a call to Kirbyville. You were kind of going home, back to Texas. Kirbyville, though, was a bit rural, whereas <laughs> growing up in the Dallas area, of course, that's a metropolis. So tell us a little bit about Kirbyville and the surrounding area. What did you encounter when you moved there? Kirbyville is just what, 15 minutes from the border of Louisiana, and it's very rural, very deep East Texas. And with that comes a culture that is definitely different. But um, as we said, as I said earlier, we definitely, when we were in Virginia, knew we were Texans. The culture we found to be very traditional and religious and witchcraft, open witchcraft as well, uh, where you would see signs of it. They, They were not silent about it or, or hiding it in any way. We, we just we just didn't know <laughs> the battles we would get into here that Florida prepared us for. But our, our, our goal here, and we've been here 43 years, was to prepare a place for God's kingdom and for him to rule and reign. And um, I did a study of the uh, redemptive gifts and of the area too. And I, some of our ladies at church, we met for probably two years, once a week, and studied and prayed together and determined that uh, Kirbyville itself has a giving a redemptive gift and East Texas as a whole does as well. So that kind of, it made sense because we recognize, okay, here are some of the strongholds. We, we've been seeing this. We've been seeing these principalities work and that they're very indicative of the redemptive gift that our area has. So, and when we're talking about a redemptive gift, that's, that's really the same list as the gifts of the spirit uh, in the Bible and um, where God says he's given these two people, but he also gives them to regions and cities. And that's what you're talking about, that Kirbyville and East Texas, really, you, you researched and found that there was a gift of giving in that area that the Lord wants to use for his greater glory, but Satan really had done everything he could to strip that away from that area. And really what you found was a lot of poverty. Well, that is true. Uh, the county, the land of Jasper, we consider is Jasper County and Newton County because they were one at one time. And then mm-hmm. uh, many in the 18, late 1800s, they were split. And But Newton County is probably the poorest county in the whole state of Texas. And with that being said, uh, also probably has a lot of child abuse. 
we learned that there was a, a place in Newton County just across, like I said, you would you hardly know when you pass from Jasper County or Kirbyville even to Newton County because it's just kind of, we're a one, one so community, rural. large community. Yeah. They would send the black girls who were becoming teenagers. They would and when you them. say they, you mean their families, their their parents. Their families would send them there to this place, and they would stay the weekend, and the girls would become what was called a woman. The families would take, and sometimes, you know, they didn't have a mother and a father. Maybe it was just a mother. And they would take the child there and uh, leave for the weekend, and men would go. And she would become a woman. And we know mm. this. I mean, we. Uh, one of our church members and intercessors was PE teacher at the elementary school. And she came crying to us one day and said, I'm so upset because one of the little girls came to me and said, uh, and was just bawling. And she questioned her, Why are, what is wrong? You know, and she said, they are going to take me to, and she named the place, this weekend, and I don't want to. I know what happens, and I'm afraid, and I'm, and she was, bought, I mean, bought, and so Georgine, our, our person was, she thought, what can I do? What can I do? Because it wasn't, you just didn't interfere and we're talking, that was in um, the seven. Well, we came here in 79, so early 80s. Charles and I, we got in our vehicle, and we drove out there. Sat for hours one evening, praying and interceding. And again, the warfare, it was, and that was before we even knew what the principalities were here that were yeah. ruling over our city in our area. And we... It was several hours. We went home, went to bed. When we woke up, the news, it was all over the news that this place had burned down in the middle of the night. And we didn't do it. <laughs> no, no one was killed, but it, it was gone. I mean, burned to the ground. And from our knowledge, that it never was resurrected or it never now, I'm not saying that there weren't times that this maybe went on, but it wasn't a place that everybody knew about that these girls would go to anymore. So but God rescued a whole out. generation, he generations did. of young girls oh, yes. from, yes. from a yes. sexual abuse that yes. was horrific. Yes. I mean, it was right. it was like codified into their tradition. Exactly. And God and it God was. released them from that. With that, we, um, I think, prayer walking, prayer journeys, um, we just finished with this uh, last Monday, the 25th year, think about it, a quarter of a century praying for a school district. And I don't mean just gathering at a church and praying for them. Our administration gives us full reign to go on the property, walk the halls, go in the rooms, Pray for teachers that want us to. We, we do not impose ourselves on anybody. We're very quiet and just, you know, walk through praying and declaring. And we do it on all three campuses. 
we pray through the administration building and even the superintendent's office. If they're there, they beg us to pray for them. They desire it. Uh, the bus barn, the, the sporting fields, we cover all of it in prayer, and we've been doing it for 25 years. Now, at first, and you do this at was, the beginning of every school year, right? Yes, the beginning of every school year. I'll go talk to the superintendent. He'll give me the time and date. It didn't just all of a sudden happen, you know, that we were on all of the campuses. It started small. And as we showed faithfulness and as we were persistent and consistent, we were given more responsibility and trust. That's kind of what we do mainly here is besides the disaster relief, there was a busload of student athletes coming from a town nearby. And right before they got to the gateway, they the bus slid and started uh, going in circles. And then it broke through a fence and turned over several times and then landed right side up. And so, wow. of course, we got, we have a scanner at home so that we're able to hear when things like that happen. And immediately we send teams to uh, either the accident site or fire or whatever it is. And so we sent a team and of course myself and Charles went to this area to pray. And all of the police, the firemen, who most we know well, um, and the EMTs, they could not believe that no one died. They could not believe wow. that the bus righted itself. And there were a couple of kids that did go to be checked out, but they were fine. Not hardly a scratch on any child. And I am convinced uh, that praying does that. And one of the things we pray is life. God is life, and that's what he, he created life, and he wants life. He put here, us here for a purpose and a reason. He put these kids here, and he wants life in our communities, not death. And so Amen. that's one thing we often pray, because we do know that the spirit of death, which we encountered in Florida, is also here. And wants to kill, steal, and destroy a person's physical, yeah. their body, or their soul, you know, and, and especially prevent them from uh, being born again and their spirit being, being brought to life. We've seen people be healed. We had a little boy in our church who had cancer, and we went to bat for him had spiritual warfare and prayer for him. And he's alive today and was on my worship team. So even though you've had some fierce spiritual battles over the years, God has opened doors for the creative gifts in you to flourish. Things that bring you life and joy. One has even become a prosperous business. Yes, I still have the camera from when I was 10 years old. I have the box even. I would make my brother... Uh, sit for hours and pose. Um, so I, I love photography from a kid. And I think it's part of my mercy gifting is 
the creative aspects of it, which uh, the Holy Spirit gives. And it shows up in my photography business. It shows up in my worship and then, you know, the the dance team, we're, we're not operating the dance team right at this moment because some of us are kind of getting old, but we're training <laughs> up the younger ones. We've got some younger little girls coming up and, of course, boys, too, with the flags. So we're, we will train them up. And, of course, my children and grandchildren. And the photography has really been so great. I, I take pictures of all their sporting events and i publish them on Facebook and I, and their friends love it. And, uh, it does satisfy this, this part of me, you know, that the way God made me and I, in my byline for it, it's Beverly Burchett photographer, but the byline was from the beginning. Every generation is to be remembered and God is a generational God. And Mm. so that, that kind of was in my thought and to bless people. I wanted to bless people, give them a good product that maybe they couldn't otherwise afford. So I kept my prices really low and I do a lot of free things uh, in order to bless. It's life-giving. And again, that's God has put us here to be life givers and represent him. So Yeah. So he pours that life back into you. And you know what? We've been talking about spiritual warfare this whole time, and that's that's a hard thing. And you've gone through some hard things, but I just wanted to bring it back that God also filled you back up with joy and allowed your creativity to flourish in the midst of calling you to do some hard things. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I do have my moments. The the kids, I didn't know this till recently, but they would tease uh, they didn't tell me, but they would say, oh, mom's in her robe again. There were days <laughs> that I would keep my robe on all day. I just had to be alone, be with God. And like you said, let him work some of these things out and fill me back up again. And then I take my robe off and go on. I think everybody has those points when they have to step back and just have their alone time with the Lord to regroup and hear from him again, you know, as well. So kind of as we wrap up, what do you think are some of the keys to being successful in spiritual warfare? I mean, you've mentioned a few, but just recap them again for us. Well, for, for sure, walk in the river of forgiveness. You cannot have that in your life and be successful. It just, it won't happen. You cannot accomplish the purposes God has for you in spiritual warfare if you have bitterness. The other would be to make sure if there's anything between you and God or people that you have it cleared up as best as you can. Now, there are times when uh, others will hold grudges. They will be mad at you for some reason. But if you've tried what you can to make things right, then you have freedom in the Lord and be in the word, be in the word daily. You cannot make it without being in the word daily. The Lord showed me a long time ago that my success was not on what I could see, but it was my obedience. 
I was successful when I did what God told me to do, regardless of the outcome. And that is so freeing. Yes. We don't have to. We're not responsible, you know, for the outcomes. Isn't that great? Well, so many of us think we are. Yeah, so many of us think that. and that's a great burden. That is a a great burden. And also, I think uh, allowing God to give you a strategy um, you can't just go into warfare without knowing the captain of the host and the strategy. Um, and I've learned there are very few times I address the enemy. God does it so much better. Now, occasionally he'll lead, lead me to rebuke or to, you know, say something. But my part usually is to worship lift God high and to obey him and pray the things on his heart that he's taught in in his word. I think we're just a lot better off. We think of spiritual warfare as fighting the devil. Well, it it is in combat with the devil, but I'm not. I'm just following the captain of the host and getting my orders from him and doing what he says. I think of so many of the stories of the Israelites when they went to battle, you know, God said, send the worshipers first. And by the time that the uh, Israelites actually encountered the enemy, the enemy had already been defeated. Exactly. For several years, when Susan Weddington was the uh, chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, she asked Charles and me, along with uh, the Pro-Texas board members, to man a prayer room and All we did was worship. That's all we did. Occasionally, they would bring back a prayer request. Now, there were those who prayer walked, too. But all we did was worship. And I really found that truth that you you just mentioned there. Because in worshiping him, God accomplished so many things we didn't even know about. Beverly, is there a woman in the Bible whose story has inspired or encouraged or taught you something? And... And how has her story related to yours? You asked for one, but can I be disobedient and, <laughs> and mention two? I think you'll understand why. Uh, one is I've learned a lot concerning Jezebel, how she operates, who she is. I don't respect her, of course. I'm not inspired by her, but because I've seen her tactics and how she works, And because the Lord says in Revelation, do not tolerate her in the church. I've Mm. learned a whole lot concerning spiritual warfare and praying for pastors. Because that's one of the things on my heart uh, is praying for pastors. The one, though, the positive is Esther. Esther shows us how to minister to the king and intercede for a nation. So she inspires me. She's shows me how to minister to King Jesus. You know, she prepared for a whole year to go in before the king. And so we prepare ourselves and we go in to the presence of our king and we minister to him through worship and adoration. And then we intercede as Esther did, which is a go-between. We we intercede for the things and people that are on God's heart so they can reach their destiny and have freedom. And of course, we know Israel uh, was what Esther did in the nation 
for the nation of Israel. So she has to be the one I really relate to and uh, connect with out of all the others. Well, dear listener, wherever God places us, he wants us to be salt and light, pushing back the darkness and sharing the good news of Jesus in our words and in our deeds. Every believer is called to this. All of us are able to pray for our families, our churches, our communities, schools, and businesses, and to get involved as the Lord directs us. James 5.16b in the New Living Translation says, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Over the past couple years, I've been praying for my own community and I'm seeing results. For instance, there was a huge gaming corporation looking at setting up a casino right here in my little community. And after much prayer by me, and I'm sure many, many others, that corporation decided not to stay set up in my city. The spiritual darkness that would have come with gambling was kept out. And dear friends, you can see results to your prayers as well. God has put you where you are for a reason. Beverly, would you take a moment and pray for all of our listeners? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have shown us that you hear, that you're waiting to hear from us, that that our prayers move you. And so I'm lifting up today. I, I was thinking of this, and in my mind's eye, I could see that young pastor's wife that was like me, didn't have a clue what what she was going to be or do. And possibly she's been disappointed and heartbroken maybe because sometimes church work is very hard. People in the church are very hard. So I lift her up to you today. And I said earlier, as I said, Lord, I pray she will turn to you, look to you, be in the word and Lord, she'll forgive. She'll forgive. And father for that, maybe that pastor's wife who has been like me, in the battle for a long time. And maybe she's wondering, have I made a difference? Have I done anything? I thank you, Lord, that, uh, as I again said earlier, her obedience is what you look at. And she can know that as she's walked with you and obeyed you throughout these years, and she's honored her husband, she's raised her children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that you love her and bless her, and you are grateful for the input and the investment she's made in your bride, the church. So, Father, I thank you for Jody. I thank you for the huge difference she's made in our lives. I thank you for our relationship, Lord, for knowing her. And in all these years of knowing her and doing disaster relief work with her, that she was a call away and how you used her and worked through her to provide, not just for us here in Kirbyville, Lord, but for people all over the world. She has been, as well as somebody cares, Doug Stringer, a conduit for your uh, provision and your blessing and your love and father for many to come to know you. I just thank you for her. I thank you for Doug. I thank you for somebody cares. And just, I thank you for this opportunity to share my story, Lord. And it's not about all the things, the bad things that, that I can remember and talk about. It's about you and all the good things you did through it. You were strong and you made me strong through it. 
I couldn't have made it without your grace. Your grace is our hope. I thank you, Jesus, and thank you for this day and this opportunity. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. Links to the scriptures and other helpful information can be found in our show notes at hergodstory.org. There, you can also sign up for periodic emails. You can get a free devotional on women of the Bible, and you can find out about the Somebody Cares Women's uh, Widows and Orphan Fund. If you need prayer, feel free to call or text the Somebody Cares 24-7 prayer line at 855-459-CARE or email us at prayer at somebodycares.org. We'd love for you to share Beverly's story with friends and be sure to follow the podcast as you, so you don't miss an episode. And now, dear friends, I leave you with a blessing from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. May God give you complete knowledge of his will and give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. May you live in a way that always honors and pleases the Lord so your life will produce every kind of good fruit. And may you grow as you learn to know God better and better. May you also be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need and be filled with joy always thanking the Father, for he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. Her God Story is a ministry of Somebody Cares America and International. To find out more about or support the ministry, go to somebodycares.org.